And Yong, welcome to I've Made a Huge Mistake in Arrested Development Podcast. I'm your host, Darren. Today, I'm joined by two guests. First of all, I have returning guest, Emily Bennett. Hello, Emily. Anyong. From the Fest Acquaintances Podcast. Yes. And I also have Christopher Dudley returning from one episode of a talking cast from like 18 months ago. Hello, Christopher. Hi, and uh, hi to all my fans from that one episode. <laughs> and today's, we are starting season three. We are covering episode one. Uh, it is The Cabin Show. It's all about the cabin. There's a lot of people going to this cabin. Um, and it was first broadcast on the 19th of September, uh, 2005. Uh, this episode is written by Mitch Hurwitz and Jim Vallali. Um, they have obviously written a number of episodes. And it's directed by Paul Feig. It is the penultimate episode that he will direct. The next episode he will direct will be The Ocean Walker, which of course will finish off the Rita Leeds uh, storyline. Uh, the summary for the episode is as follows. Michael postpones camping with his son to look for his father in Reno. Meanwhile, Lucille goes off her medication. <laughs> Job meets a fellow disappointed son. And maybe and George Michael can't help being thrown together. And that summary is from TV Guide. I, I, I think that's quite interesting because it's, I think that just the line about Lucille goes off her medication <laughs> is such a kind of... <laughs> you think to yourself, what medication? Uh, obviously, we find out in the episode where it is, but it's just, it's just such an odd, such an odd storyline for them to choose. Um, particularly the way that they tie it into um, Tom Cruise. It's just such an odd, such an odd storyline. Um, uh, and now, first of all, before we get into the episode properly, though, I'm going to ask uh, Christopher. Uh, when did you come to Arrested Development? Did you watch it when it was being broadcast? Obviously. Uh, you're not American, so you wouldn't have been able to watch it when it was kind of on in America as such. Obviously, there would have been a sl- usually there's a slight delay for for other countries. I don't know what the delay is like for South Africa. Um, yeah. Or did you come to it later on? Did you come to it on DVD or Netflix? Uh, <laughs> well, seeing as we only got Netflix uh, eight months ago, um, no, I, I, <laughs> I did see it on TV, um, but it was... It was sometime after the original American airing, I think. Um, I think that it was on kind of a two or three year gap. Um, and in- interestingly enough, uh, my introduction was season three. Um, this is why I was kind of excited to jump into the podcast here, because season three was the first season that I started watching and like saw every episode consecutively. So I wasn't just like lost in the sea of insane plot lines and characters that come and disappear out of nowhere um i was kind of like slowly being introduced to uh the plot and like this was kind of what i wanted to mention with um with you bringing up the lucille's medication stuff do you think that season three in particular does this where it just introduces facets and plot lines that these characters supposedly have uh had in their histories this whole time, but have just never been mentioned. Because um, I feel like it it comes up a little bit, like they'll just suddenly introduce something, and the characters will all just behave as if this is normal, except they'll all repeat it two or three times so the audience knows what the joke is about. Yeah, I think I think the one with that medication is just such an odd one, because basically she goes off postpartum medication, which she's been taking <laughs> since she had Buster, which at this point is like 31 years or something. Yeah. Um, and I don't, I don't know how long you're meant to take postpartum medication, but I'm guessing it's not for three decades. Um, you know, I'm sure the sh- then maybe it's not so much postpartum as just depression. <laughs> yeah, I was gonna say. I don't know. I think I think this episode is interesting because um, you know the major the major storylines of season three 
First of all, we have Rita Leeds, which starts in the next episode and kind of concludes after five or, or six episodes. Then you have the stuff that leads up towards the reveal about, um, you know, the the, the, the Iraq stuff. Mm. Uh, and then the, then the show finishes. So this episode is quite interesting because it's a little bit self-contained. Yeah. And it reintroduces you to the family and it does it by putting up the dynamics of having, um, you know, Michael and George Michael having Lindsay and maybe um, having Job and now Steve Holt, who is, you know, his, his son. So everyone it seems to be. And then obviously uh, by the time, uh, you know, Lucille and Buster get to the cabin, you know, not, it wasn't a planned trip, but you know, that pairing is then going to the cabin and you know, you, you have, um, you have Kitty and, and George senior back together. You, you have uh, Lindsay going to, to see Tobias. Like it's kind of almost like it's telling people who've never seen the show before. Here's a father and son. Here's a father and daughter. These two are married and just kind of reestablishing the relationships. Yeah. All whilst kind of taking the mickey out of Reno a little bit. Yeah. Um, I mean, I, I, yeah, I, I agree. I was going to say because, like, you know, just the nature of this show is that once I watched the first episode of season three, I immediately started watching the next episode of season three um, and was surprised <laughs> just how many of the kind of season plot lines... Uh, like, really start in episode two. Um, whereas, yeah, this first yeah. episode does feel almost like a, a a cap at a season two. Like, a sort of, we've got to wrap up some of the stuff yeah. so we can establish, like, the new status quo. Which I guess yeah. isn't, um, it isn't unheard of in a TV show. Like, that's a pretty standard episode one of a season kind of thing. But I think yeah. uh, maybe this is... Uh, me having the wrong impression or like hearing people analyze the show in the years after it had been done but i did get the sense that like season three was kind of the okay we've desperately got to actually like try and appeal to some new some new audience (laughs) members somehow because we're our our episode number's been cut and it doesn't look like we're going to get another one so if we can't hook people now if we can't like find a way to make this insane show accessible, uh, then what are we going to do? So, do you think that like that's a correct assessment of this episode of like yeah, I agree trying that... to get new people in. I agree that it's 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 a capita season two basically because everything that started there with you know Tobias running off and people getting into fights and all that kind of that does get resolved here. And obviously, we have the wonderful imasker.com, which is yeah. such a great joke, and it basically concludes all the prison stuff like after this i assume oscar is freed from prison we never see that um (laughs) and then oscar never returns for the rest of season three because you know he was a big part of season two and so that's essentially the end of oscar's kind of story is that he's back out well i mean he does show up one more time i don't know if yeah yeah but i mean i mean he's he's not like he's not like a big feature like season two it was like 50 percent oscar 50 percent george senior there was so much mm-hmm. of of both of them and obviously that was the way to get jeffrey tamber to to be with the whole cast rather than just be stuck in the attic because when he's in the attic he only actually interacts with like four people in the entire season but as oscar he's always with the family and he's in family gatherings and so it's just a, a broader way to get jeffrey tamber to actually interact with more people whereas yeah. Because you got him under house arrest, starting from the next episode, you don't need Oscar again. You don't need Oscar to be, you know, part of the story until you get to the very end of the season. Um, you know, so I think it's it. You know, it's it, it's interesting that 
that this kind of concludes a lot of the outstanding stories in season two. And if you've watched the start of the next episode, and I'll I'll really discuss it when I get into it in the next episode, it opens with a summation of this episode, really. Like, for the first, like, three minutes of that episode, it's just a summation of everything that happened in this episode, rounding off all the stories, (laughs) and then putting George Sr. under house arrest, and then starting all the stuff with the British syndicate and, and Rita... And and it just be, yeah. it just like you know this this season is notable because they they cut the the titles down a lot. There's a lot of episodes which just have the little sting and then Arrested Development and then they keep going. So it does seem like they were trying to pack as much in as they could. Right, and I do think yeah. Well, that's exactly what I was going to say. <laughs> they were trying to fit as much as they could because this was probably it. I mean, um, when the when the schedule was announced in two thousand five two thousand six, they kind of knew that they were only going to be on for half the season. Mm-hmm. Um, and then they found out that all the final episodes were going to go out on one night. <laughs> and so I, I guess to, the, to then, it, you know, at that point, and then when it got to March, they, I mean, they were like the first show cancelled before the upfronts. So I think their their fate was kind of sealed. There was a chance they could have had a back nine. It wasn't guaranteed that it would only be 13 episodes, but I think Mitch Hurwitz realised, you know, they they were getting like two, three million at a time when, you know, shows that weren't performing well were getting six seven million you know so they were they were really getting low ratings uh and as soon as they moved out of their slot on the monday night because this is when they were moved to monday at eight (laughs) o'clock like skating skating with the stars or something was put in their place (laughs) and that finished that finished that finished in like the top 50 and then um prison break like became a huge success as well and so it was kind of clear that there wasn't really any space for them on the Sunday night schedule anymore because, you know, American Dad had launched and Family Guy had returned. And so there was no chance of them returning to Sunday. And so they were done on a Monday, basically. So I remember there was talk of them moving to a different network. But then, of course, they addressed that later on. That doesn't happen. They're, they're, they, <laughs> they were produced by Fox. If they'd, have been, if they'd have been like a Warner Brothers show and they were on Fox, then there was a chance that maybe Warner Brothers could have made mm-hmm. a deal. But... It just wasn't a realistic proposition. Obviously, they then returned with Netflix. But before we get to the fact that the show was cancelled, let's get into the fact that the show was actually on and managed to get to a third season, which was something of a miracle, considering that season two had had four episodes cut from it. So, um, you know, the fact that they got a season three was a bit of a miracle. So let's get into this episode because there's a lot going on. Yeah. You know, as I said, everyone is getting reintroduced. Uh, and we start, first of all, with the news that Michael Bluth sees something he'd never seen before. And we get a cameo here from Jim Cramer. Um, and I love how he sums up the situation for everyone. Uh, a little mini recap where he says... Bluth's in jail! I think his son is running the cummy! Does him like a total moron to me! And he, he goes up as high as a don't buy. And I like how Michael takes don't buy as being a good thing. Um, it's it's just really funny. Uh, and you yeah. just have Jim Cramer yelling, don't buy Bluth. Uh, and then, of course, this is where Michael, as he, as he gets up to say, you know, you build a good house, he starts tripping and falling into the sinkhole. <laughs> and, and this is where Michael makes the choice to, to go and see his dad in prison. Uh, we know from the end of of Righteous Brothers, the the finale for season two, that it's not a George Senior in prison, and in fact he has once again fled uh, Orange County, uh, and once again he's been aided by Kitty. <laughs> so, and Michael says, you know, he he told people not to visit, but he's got no problem with going there to gloat. Uh, and this is where we get introduced to the fact that he has sold the cabin property 
so that he can keep the company afloat. And he wants to spend some time with George Michael. Um, and we get introduced to uh, a weird little subplot here about um, Buster and Lucille, where Lucille wants Michael to spend time with Buster. And she says it's not because he has that horrible hook for a hand now. <laughs> Uh, which is a, a nice subtle way of reintroducing you to the fact that Buster lost a hand. Um, it's the snoring. And she plays a recording <laughs> of Buster snoring. And on the recording, you hear her go... Um, which I just... I love how she's basically standing there over her sleeping son, recording him snoring and saying that. Uh, yeah, and I love that. The conclusion or kind of the the uh the, the big reveal of this plot line is that buster has also made a recording of his own snoring <laughs> yeah. like that's just such a great way to resolve that and this is where michael actually establishes buster's age for us where uh lucille says that you know I, I, in fact michael actually says you seem more villainous than usual are you sober and of course she goes it's 8am and he goes so it's not that uh, and this is where she reveals she went off her postpartum medication and Michael says you had Buster 32 years ago so we're firmly establishing that Buster is now 32 which of course means when the show began he was 30 which quite frankly just makes everything that's happened in the last two seasons even more disturbing between Lucille and Buster um, you know maybe I'd have accepted it if he was in his 20s or something but and we get a little flashback to uh, 1994, uh, where we see a young Buster um, playing playing the drum, which of course was something he did in the pilot. There are actually quite a few little callbacks in this episode to the pilot episode. Uh, Michael actually spells one out later on when he, he gets to the cabin with uh, George Michael. Um, but we, we see hmm. Buster playing that drum that he played very loudly in the, in the pilot episode. Um, and we see John Beard, uh, once again <laughs> kind of appropriately dressed for the 90s, saying, claiming she could take it no more, the young mother released the emergency brake, allowing her car to roll backwards into the lake nearby. And of course, <laughs> Lucille says, good for her. And in the background, you see her housekeeper cross, cross herself, because she obviously realises what this could mean for Buster. Uh, and that is actually a reference to um, uh, Susan Smith, who was a mother who did this. She, uh, she put her kids in a car and then she took the brake off and, and let it roll into a lake and drowned her children. Um, I can't stop laughing. And it's, and it's, it's horrible. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah. like, can we maybe take that as an opportunity to talk about... I mean, I, I, it's fair to say Arrested Development was a show that actively pushed boundaries, uh, yeah. especially back in that uh, time period. Um, do you think that... Uh, some of the material they decided was okay for them to, like, joke about would necessarily be done today. I mean, like, particularly the, um, the Tobias stuff, uh, I think if, if someone had introduced that character and all of those jokes today, it might, I don't know if it would yeah, go down as well. Not. Um, I mean, I, I have a lot of fondness just for, like, the wordplay, and I think because when I first watched it, I was a teenager, and that stuff tends to be funnier with a little bit less awareness. Yeah. But yeah, do you think that uh, there are some lines that perhaps they wouldn't cross, or wouldn't have crossed as quickly? I mean, at this particular point, it was a show that was on at, like, 8pm, 
So, so the fact that they they've got a joke about infanticide <laughs> on this show, I mean, I I don't I don't know that the show. I guess the thing is, I think maybe if Arrested Development was being created now, it would most likely be like a cable show. It would probably be on FX. Yeah. It would never be a network show. They, you know, just the tone of it and the way it's done. I think they wouldn't even try getting a network to agree. And so actually, they probably would push the boundaries a little further. Because they would go for like a, a kind of network tone rather than, uh, you know, right. like a cable tone rather than network. Well, and I think like some of the gay stuff is obviously just kind of childish. I don't think anyone's ever vilifying Tobias for his homosexual leanings or no. bi curious leanings. Um, so that probably would be a little bit different, but I think like on It's Always Sunny, they do the same thing with Mac. He's also in denial about his homosexuality. But um, the, the like infanticide stuff and the other stuff, I don't think they're ever asking you to be on Lucille's side <laughs> no. so much. Like, no. like, you're not supposed to think that she's a character to look up to. So I think it plays a little bit better that way. And I'd say that not only that, yeah. but obviously the next thing that Lucille says is, you know, when we see that flashback, you're meant to think that... Um, you know, she's cheering this mother because she killed her children. And then you find out that Lucille, you know, um, says she gained three pounds. And obviously, you know, she's always she's always going on about um, Lindsay's weight and obviously keeping as low a weight as possible. It seems to be Lucille's goal in life. Um, and obviously coming off her postpartum medication made her put on weight. And that's what she didn't like. She wasn't cheering the infanticide. It was just the way it altered her mood, basically, and kind of made her um, kind of cheerful, but in the wrong way. But yeah, I, I think I think some of the I think some of the stuff in like season two is a bit more explicit than some of the stuff in season three. You know, they 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 do kind of push stuff a bit more with Tobias there. Um, but we can talk about some of that Tobias stuff later on in this episode uh, because I think yeah, yeah. I think some of it's a bit tamer than some of the stuff from season two. Um, but of course, this is where we get a reference to Tom Cruise, who um, about like two or three months before this show went out, he did an interview where he talked about, um, you know, people taking medication. Um, and Lucille says... Uh, well, apparently, mood-altering medication leads to street drugs. That's what this very handsome young doctor said on the Today Show. <laughs> and obviously, Michael says, that was Tom Cruise. And Lucille says... They said he was some kind of scientist. <laughs> Which is such a, such a great joke. Um, you know, Michael suggests that she goes to the cabin in the woods and takes a break from Buster. Um, and this is where we get one of my favourite jokes, which um, plays on the DVD menu. It's the last thing that plays just before the DVD menu repeats itself. Um, and they keep the gap where, um, you know, Michael explains they sold the, the land and they keep in the cabin. Um, and he says, you know, maybe you can take a date up there. And Lucille asks, how am I supposed to find <laughs> someone willing to go into that musty old claptrap? And then Michael pauses for about like a full five seconds and then he goes the cabin yes and that one that would be difficult too that's perfect <laughs> oh it's a beautiful it pause it really is it's like three full beats <laughs> yeah the thing that i love about um this whole conversation is like not not only perfectly honed the timing is for every actor on the show at this point um but also that you keep getting these glimpses whenever the camera pans that there is this weird shape behind the door 
Um, because it's a glass pane, and it's yeah. just Job. It's just Job who is therefore the whole scene totally inexplicably. Yes. Um, <laughs> well, Michael. Michael says to his mother, he says, "Please get back on the meds, Mom. We miss the old, old you." Um, and as she leaves, she closes the door, and she does indeed reveal that Job has been standing there the whole time. And this is where we get like some of my favourite Job Michael stuff. Um, where they talk about the cabin and obviously, you know, the 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 kind of relationship they had with George Sr. And Job, of course, says that he didn't even know they had a cabin. Um, and Michael says he's actually never <laughs> been there. And then we see the a quick flashback between the different time periods for, for George Sr. As, as, he, as he promises to take Michael. And you see him, first of all, say, Hey, pal, something's come up. This nice young lady has lost her puppy. And your dad's got to help her find him. Then it flashes forward a couple of years, and he's like, Oh, bad news, buddy. This young lady's dad is sick, and I'm taking her to the hospital. And then, of course, by the time we get to 1983, George is like, Come on, you're old enough to figure this out. I'm nailing this broad. <laughs> and <laughs> those kind of quick flashbacks, and how how George Sr. kind of just drops the pretense by the time it gets to, like, 1983. Um and I, I love all this stuff between Joe and Michael. It's just so great where he keeps talking. He keeps calling Michael a robot at this particular point. And I, I just, I love the, the kind of the teary opening where he's like, um, but at least he promised to take you. He just let me blindly enjoy my childhood. I didn't even know there was a cabinet. He wasn't taking me to. <laughs> He also says, I'm not going to burst into tears about it. And then he bursts into tears. (laughs) Yeah, and that's when he kind of grabs Michael and he says, you taste these tears. Taste my sad Michael. And uh, (laughs) Michael's like, I'm not going to lick your eye, which is such a (laughs) Job has become very in touch with his emotions. (laughs) He's just letting himself feel everything. And he says, uh, I don't have a son, to which the narrator, of course, says he does. Um, and I just love the logic of this very long speech where he says, But if I ever do, I'm either going to take him to the cabin in the woods, or I'm going to promise to take him and then not take him. But the one thing that I will never do is not tell him that I'm taking him to a cabin in the woods and then not take him. (laughs) (laughs) Such a long explanation of what he would do if he had a son. And of course, he does have a son. And, you know, Michael, you know, tells him that the cabin's going to be stacked up next to the carport. So, you know, maybe they should head up there. And I like how he goes one first time (laughs) as opposed to one last time. And then, of course, Job grabs Michael again and says, taste the happy. And Michael says, it tastes a lot like sad. I love that. um, I mean, just when you uh, mentioned it, like I suddenly realized that Job's line of I didn't even know there was a cabin is such like a perfect little... Uh, joke for like the the devoted audience because this is an entirely new concept for them as well, right? Yes, yeah. And we... for me, it's just like <laughs> it's such a bizarre. I mean, it's not even a set; it's a like a prop for them to add for season three. It's like, hey guys, we've got our established sets, we've got some money for season three. What are we going to do? Why don't we add half of a cabin, <laughs> another wacky yeah. vehicle? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, and it is. I will say this: I I do like the cabin because it gets used in such interesting ways later on in the season. And you know, a storyline that was c- kind of at the end of season two was George Michael and maybe kissing, 
And we find out here that, uh, that that George Michael has been in the car like every single day, basically, because he's trying to hide away from maybe. Uh, mm-hmm. Because each time they try and get away from each other in the house, they end up somehow getting pushed together. Um, and, you know, this is where um, George Michael has the offer now to go up to the cabin. Um, and I like how George Michael says, can you afford to skip work? And he says, I think the president of a don't buy company can take a day off. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's as if they both see that as a good thing as well um and you know this is where job then comes out with his one sleeping bag and he says they're gonna have to double up which i cannot imagine jason bateman and will on it stuck into one like sleeping bag that's such an that's such a kind of absurd idea a child-sized sleeping <laughs> yeah. bag grizzly adams <laughs> and he yells pigs in a blanket um, and then this is the point where they basically they copy the because the way that Michael was sitting as he was told each time about, you know, he's not going to the cabin. They then copy this as Job sits in the same place where Michael was sitting and Michael takes the same like stance that George Senior did where he tells he tells him, sorry, pal, something came up. And Job, of course, goes, it is worse to know. Uh, and then the narrator tells us <laughs> Job was getting life lessons all over the place. Oh, man. I love I love Arrested Moments like approach to running jokes, and uh, this probably isn't the place to debate the merits of something like The Big Bang Theory. But um, one of the okay. things that bugged me about that show was that for them, just the fact that uh, for seasons upon seasons, the fact that Sheldon had a spot and everyone knew that there was a Sheldon spot on the chair was the full extent of the running joke. It was just something that they name checked. Whereas Arrested Development like put so much effort into setting up visual running jokes and these long-standing things, but manages to like change the context of the joke enough each time that the punchline isn't just that it's name-checking a running joke; it's also like a joke in of itself. Yeah. Um, and one of the things that I kind of right. was wondering about watching this episode, which ties into the whole, is this uh, really intended uh, to draw a new audience as well? Is that um, they don't use a lot of the musical stings um, that they do for the previous running jokes. Like, anytime yeah. Oscar is talking to uh, Buster, they have that little musical note as soon as he sort of builds up to him and backs <laughs> away from a reel about him being his father. Yeah. Um, and they don't yeah. use too many of that stuff, but they do set up new running jokes in this episode for the yeah. season. Yeah, because um, they have they have that music that, that plays like, yeah. when um when they when they're talking about going to the cabin, and they do that here where the the kind of disappointment music that Michael gets is then played when Joe gets disappointed, um, <laughs> which is a, like a nice little. Even though we're only a few minutes into the episode, they've already set this up as like a joke that will pay off really quickly. Yeah, and now they confuse the timeline slightly because Michael, you know, Oscar has been in prison for two months, though the sinkhole only was established like the day before. So they kind of mess up the timeline a little bit here. But they did the same thing at the start of season two where uh, stuff that happened in a few hours was apparently taking place over days. Um, And they go back to the prison, but as they've taken down the standing set they had for season one for the prison, we're in a different prison standing set here. And they take advantage of having a brand new way to do a joke where they have like those little (laughs) prison phones, uh, but they have prison phones that cut off. So when one person is talking and the other starts talking, it kind of cuts between the two. And I, <laughs> I love, I love how they do this because 
you know, Oscar is is saying, you know, you came, you came, and Michael starts talking, and you get little bits of Oscar, um, and he goes every night they, and then he gets cut off, and then you hear him when he comes back in, he goes, and they cover it with soap, and you're supposed to thank them. So that's like it. That's doing all I you came a to favor. say. So the suggestion of what he's saying in between is a lot worse than what he's actually saying. Um, and then, of course, you know... That's a joke. Yes? That's a joke that I do think maybe they would have cut out <laughs> if it had been today. That's it, it, It's actually a joke that George Sr. has made himself, because obviously when he had the Krugerans, huh. he said he was paying them, you know, and and someone said, uh, you know, does that mean you so you don't get beaten up in the shower? And he goes, yeah, or worse. Um, so they've yeah. they've hinted at it before, but... I just love that when we get to this point, we get to, you know, once Michael stops his gloating, Oscar, you know, says, I'm your uncle. I'm your dad's twin brother, which once again feels like telling a new audience who this character is. (laughs) And then he goes, I'm Oscar. He switched on me. No one believes me. And I love the kind of desperation in his voice. Uh, And I've always said this. Jeffrey Tambor really plays Oscar and George as two separate characters. Uh, and he, yeah. even here where he's playing Oscar, who's been turned into George, he, he still plays it slightly <laughs> differently than if he's just George. Um, and I do like the joke of um, you've got the wrong twin was a popular alibi. <laughs> 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 and then, of course, you see uh, Larry and Dave, who are two of the quadruplets. <laughs> you want Curtis and Jack, yeah. which is such a... They like to play with multiples. Yes, well, obviously, you know, Michael and Lindsay are supposed to be twins, something that we'll find out is not completely accurate. Right. Um, and this is where we get um, Oscar and his website uh, called imoscar.com. And he says, I'm innocent, Michael. I'm Oscar.com. And <laughs> I, I, I love that when, when Michael then repeats it, because, you know, obviously, you know, Michael doesn't buy it. And he says, you know, I understand your child comes first. And obviously the fact that he understands something Michael is saying is, is the first indication that he's not George Sr. Um, <laughs> and, you know, Michael then goes, oh, my God, you're Oscar. And Oscar just replies with dot com. <laughs> such, a, such a stupid joke. But I love how Oscar is completely committed to it. And obviously they call back to this blog <laughs> later on in the show. Um, I'm not sure how Oscar has managed to get like domain hosting while he's in prison. <laughs> like, it's, it's not just like it's a blog spot or a WordPress or something. He's actually managed to get the domain name. So that's quite impressive, uh, considering he's basically a yeah. guy who only owns one pair of pants um, and lives in a trailer. <laughs> so, um, yeah. yeah. Um, and so obviously Michael gets to work and he sees all the employees. They don't seem to be doing any work anymore. They're all just celebrating. <laughs> they have, of course, the mission accomplished banner up and they're all chanting, don't buy. Uh, and we know that obviously people within the Bluth family and Bluth organization love to start chanting stuff. Um, you know, in particular, they like chanting speech over and over again when they don't know who's going to give a speech. And and I think the funny thing is as well is Lindsay like rides in on a photocopier, which is this is just so fun. And then of course, you know, she wants to buy a Volvo, and she hands Lindsay a uh, she Lindsay takes off like a, a photocopy, hands it to Michael as though it's the picture of the Volvo. And of course, Michael says, "This is not a Volvo." <laughs> and then she says, "Oh, that's him sitting on the copier." And then she hands him another 
picture. Uh, yeah, again, that, I think that is a joke that kind of, unless you know what they're talking about, you kind of like a little, maybe a little puzzled. <laughs> unless you know about human anatomy. Well, yeah. I mean, I, I guess if you're like a teenager, maybe you don't understand what they're... I they're didn't doing. know. Yeah. I didn't know many jokes in this <laughs> episode when it first aired, but I was... 15 or so. It seems like the kind of joke where one of the writers who knows nothing about cars got a ride in someone's car and asked, <laughs> what kind of car is this? And then grossly misheard what the answer was. Yeah. It's like the uh, the 11, 11 inch pianist. Um, and yeah. here we, we see that, that uh, Lindsay says that um, you know, she recaps what happened at the end of season two for the viewer and says that uh, her husband dumped dumped her and ran off to Vegas with Kitty. And I love that she inherits this thing that her her mother does of just yelling insults as though the person is within earshot. <laughs> and of course, Michael says, well, he's definitely got a type, which it means he's basically calling his sister a whore. <laughs> you know, so <laughs> which, again, he's like insulted her twice very quickly. Um, and then, of course, you know, he, he, when she hands him the piece of paper that actually has the car in, you know, he says, that's the Volvo. And then, of course, um, she swaps them out and he goes, glad I didn't spring for colour. And we get this weird little joke here where, uh, you know, the, there's only really a running joke for this episode where Lindsay only wants what she can't have. Uh, and so, you know, of course, you know, once once Michael says you can have the car, she says, I don't know, it's so boxy. Uh, <laughs> once again, proving the point. Um, and, and then I love I love Job's little bit here when when they get into the office, and Michael, you know, said that he's he's gone to prison and he wants to know if um, you know Dad has been in contact with anyone. Um, and I like how Job says, "Like I'd hear from that son of a bitch." And then when he kind of figures out that you know it's it's not uh, you know it's not it's Oscar in prison. Um, you know, the narrator says it made sense because he re- received this this um, letter from a group called SAD, uh, which reunites <laughs> abandoned sons with their fathers, which, I mean, if your father abandons you, do you really want to be reunited with him? Um, but, of course, under his breath then, as Job figures it out, he whispers, that son of a bitch. And I love how Will on it makes... Those two son of a bitches like sound completely different, and then we get a reappearance here of uh, James Allen Spangler, who has, of course, in the past sued Barry Zuckerman and sued the army, um, and somehow he's ended up back in the offices of of Barry Zuckerman, and this is where we get the disappointed music sting, as uh, you know, Michael finds out Barry is in Reno, uh, and he he says he's been visiting my father in prison, and. Uh, James Spangler says, yeah, Barry says a lot of things he doesn't mean. And we see him with camping gear. And I don't, I don't know why Barry would want to take his, his person, like the person who sued him like for a camping trip. But apparently he, he was going to. But yeah, it's just it's like a, a, and they cut the, they actually cut the music off as Michael hangs up the phone as well, um, which is a nice little touch. Uh, and, and then, of course, when Michael says he's going to Reno to look for Dad, Job kind of sarcastically says, "Good luck, favorite son," um, <laughs> uh, which I, I kind of like. And then, of course, this is where um, you know Michael does the same thing again and disappoints this time George Michael by telling him that he's not going to be able to go to the cabin with him. Um, uh, of course, you know, George Michael points out that the cabin's in Lake Tahoe and that's near Reno. <laughs> so uh, Michael doesn't need to do this. I don't know the geography of the area, so um, I'm not 100% sure 
you know, from Orange County, uh, what you would go past on the way to Reno? Uh, well, it's an eight-hour drive, first of all. <laughs> <laughs> you would probably kind of have to go through Tahoe to get to Reno. They don't do that because they don't actually go to Reno in this. <laughs> <laughs> they didn't take the time or the money to actually come here, obviously. No, I, I, think, I think they just kind <laughs> of put a couple, they put up like a... I mean, is is there a Swallows family style restaurant in <laughs> Reno? <laughs> there is, there is not, and oh. there are also also no palm trees, which every show likes to put palm trees in <laughs> Reno. Like Reno Nine One One did the same thing, but they were filming in Vegas, so it doesn't look anything like Reno. <laughs> so if you're watching anything and there are palm trees, just know that is not Reno. Not Reno. Um, and is there any seedy underbelly in Reno? Uh, that you're aware yeah. of. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's, it's like not a, a... as prevalent as it used to be, but you know, we have our <laughs> we have our secrets. <laughs> well, at this particular point, Michael then suggests, um, you know, that George Michael should pop a tent in front with his cousin, maybe, which is an unfortunate phrasing. And of course, maybe says she's not really the outdoorsy type. To which Michael says, well, this is a good chance for you to rub off on her. God. So they, I mean, in most of season two, they kind of pulled back from the uh, incest stuff. But this this episode is fairly heavy with it, uh, starting with those phrases there. Yeah, jokes that I didn't get in high school. <laughs> <laughs> and this is where we go to the park where um, the sons and, and fathers are. And um, <laughs> I like, I just love this exchange so much where... Um, Job and Steve Holt are, you know, sitting on the on the bench, and um, you know, Steve Holt wonders if Job is looking for his dad, um, and um, Job disappointingly says he's not going to show. He goes, "I feel like that kid who found the severed hand." <laughs> <laughs> and then I love how I love how Steve Holt goes, "Hey, Dad, look what I found." <laughs> Job goes. Anything for his father's approval. Heartbreaking. <laughs> it's just such an odd... I don't... I mean, obviously I can see how they could misinterpret the statue because that's what it looks like it's doing, but I don't know. It's just such a such a weird joke that they do there. Uh, but I just really love it. I, I feel like Arisa Women gets so much praise for its dialogue, but also the jokes like that, just like that visual of the statue in the hand... Is it's such a great visual joke, and then the almost freeze frame where Steve Holt and Job recreate it like thirty seconds later is like just so funny. <laughs> uh, I, one of the things that kind of always drew me to the show when I uh, eventually started kind of going back to the beginning and rewatching was like their commitment to finding new ways to tell jokes using the medium, whether it's the found footage stuff or the footage not found <laughs> joke that they do uh, quite often. Um, or, like, earlier in the episode where they do that whole, like, cutting off uh, Michael censoring uh, Oscar. Like, yeah. that's that's a great way to introduce, like, playing with audio to do a joke that isn't just relying on straight, like, set-up punchline right. kind of stuff. Yeah. And I, I love the, the quick explanation here from the narrator who says that... Um... Uh, when when the narrator goes... Remember when I said Job had a son? I'm Job. I wasn't just saying that. It's <laughs> as if people wouldn't trust the narrator. Uh, and he shows a list of the girls, you know, that Job got, got 
intimate with in high school and how three of them, you know, became pregnant. One of them had a baby and that baby would grow up to be. And as he says, Steve Holt, Steve Holt says, Steve Holt. And of course, Steve Holt's mother, um, I'm guessing she never married because her name is Eve Holt. And in the the uh, the yearbook, you see her quote is Eve Holt. <laughs> <laughs> and I love that Job's quote in the yearbook is, um, I hope, you know, like his, his, his hopes for the future is, I hope to go camping with my father. <laughs> Which is... <laughs> <laughs> he's like, he's put that in his yearbook as like a, a thing that he hopes to achieve. Uh, showing how disappointed he's been. But the funny thing is, obviously, he doesn't know about the cabin. He just wants to go camping. Um, (laughs) Maybe that's why it's so heartbreaking when he finds out about the cabin. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, And, of course, you know, Steve Holt suggests here that he wanted to spend time with his dad and, you know, maybe go camping. And Job makes a suggestion that maybe they could go up to Reno and go to the cabin. And the narrator says if Steve had a father, he would have warned him not to go into the woods with strange men. But he didn't. And then I love Steve Holt um, getting on to the, um, uh, the segue with Job. And then they kind of slowly go off. <laughs> and I love how... Isn't it just like laying on the ground too because he yeah. broke the kickstand? Yeah. And then, and then they get on and it slowly goes away. But as they do, Job yells camping and Steve Holt just woos after him. Uh, so the fact that job yells camping i think gives an idea of where steve holt got his thing where he just yells steve holt over and over um and i do you know what i don't know who this taxi driver is as an actor but when michael gets to reno and he he's in the 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 taxi i just love the way he says the christian lead had the cd underbelly shut down it's a swallows um uh, and the narrator explains that Swallows was a, a family-style restaurant by day and an anything-goes pansexual bazaar by night. <laughs> also, yes? also, we can't skip over the great visual of, it says on the taxi, Reno, make the biggest little mistake of your life. Because <laughs> cause Reno's city slogan is biggest little city. <laughs> Uh, they do point out that it's it's competing with the what happens in Vegas stays in Vegas campaign. Um, uh, and, uh, you know, Michael arrives at Swallows. Now, if you see Tobias standing there as, you know, a cocktail waitress, as he portrays himself later, you'll notice that his badge says Tobias Swallows. Which, <laughs> of course. Yeah. Um, and I like how he says, can I interest you in a smoothie or an amel? And then he goes, Michael. Uh, and cuts himself off. <laughs> so I don't. I, the thing is, they say it's a pansexual bazaar at night. So I'm not sure why he would be offering people amyl nitrate during the day. Um, I don't know. Be prepared. <laughs> yeah, I guess. <laughs> Maybe it's a late lunch. <laughs> and here we find out, you know, that obviously, you know, Tobias had fled to go to Vegas to join the Blue Man Group there. Uh, for it seems for most of season two they had a I don't know a show in Orange County for most of the time, <laughs> <laughs> so I guess they 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 were taking a year off from Vegas or something, so they've gone back to their Vegas show, um, and we find out that George Senior has actually filled the role, um, you know, hiding in plain sight until he choked on a marshmallow and almost died because no one noticed he turned blue. Um, <laughs> And I must say that Jeffrey Tambor, like with the the blue paint on his head, uh, he looks great. 
Like he really <laughs> kind of, and he takes advantage of that when he appears later on in the episode, which we'll talk about in a little bit. Uh, and then we find out, you know, that Tobias, he, you know, Kitty had run away with him, but then she had um, <laughs> she had blue handprints uh, on her her chest, um, which of course leads Michael to realise that uh, George Senior is back with Kitty. Um, and I like how the manager comes in and says that the tuna melt is up and you need to flip the cushions in the grind room. Um, which is such a, I, I mean, I don't want to know what happened on those cushions. But I think it's funny that Tobias, uh, you know, he he's annoyed that he's going to be smelling to high heaven of a tuna melt <laughs> rather, than, rather than whatever has gone on in the cushions in the grind room. That would be the thing that would bother me, not the tuna melt. And obviously, you know, Michael tells Tobias that Lindsay wants to get back with him, you know, not to call her because if he does, you know, if he makes it clear he wants to get back with Lindsay, then she won't come to, to get back with him because she doesn't want, you know, she doesn't want what she can have. She only wants what she can't have. Uh, and then obviously Tobias... You know, uh, he 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 tells Michael that um, you know to go to the theatre to to see if um, if George Senior is there, um, which he explains as saying um, it all points to Dad. Dad's in Reno. Kit is in Reno. Dad's in Kitty. <laughs> he must be a blue man. And the blue men are now in Reno because they were in Vegas and in Orange County, and now they're in Reno. <laughs> It's a very odd tour that they're taking here. Uh, and then obviously, you know, um, Tobias says that he has to break down the salad bar and set up the leather pony. To which Michael says, what's a leather pony? And he goes, I don't know. We don't have that at lunch. <laughs> um, so I don't know how he's going to set it up. But uh, yeah. Um, and obviously, once Michael lets Lindsay know that he's found Tobias, uh, she then... I mean, he paints it as, you know, he's got to bring him back against his will. And uh, Lindsay says, well, knock him out if you have to. He's my husband. She um, shows her frame of mind here. Um, and then at this particular point, Lindsay decides that she's going to go to Reno. Uh, and she's going to take maybe and George Michael with her. Uh, and then the narrator tells us that the kids found themselves uh, closer than ever on the bumpy road to Reno. <laughs> setting up uh, one of my least favourite things to see on television, people violently swerving across lanes of traffic. (laughs) (laughs) Just like, even in a comedy, it's just stressful for me. And they're doing it in the stair car as well, aren't they? So nothing is hard to (laughs) manoeuvre. I mean, you know, you're going to get hop-ons. And (laughs) so (laughs) I like how (laughs) Lindsay as well, she has a ringtone and it's the theme to Arrested Development. (laughs) Um, and it, it, and of course, Tobias calls against Michael's advice, um, and um, you know Lindsay then decides that she doesn't need him, and that's when the violent swerving begins. Uh, and obviously, it pushes maybe and George Michael together, and just at the moment where they're trying to get apart from each other. Uh, and I like how Tobias kind of he for some reason while he's making this phone call, he he says you know he can't leave Kitty. And I like how he goes, you know, what with all the sexual intercourse and whatnot. Um, I d- and I don't, I don't know why he's making the call if he's just basically going to tell her that he's with Kitty. Um, although he does ask a question, what if he's less of a blue man and more of a cocktail waitress? <laughs> <laughs> and as they, as they turn again, maybe he's like, hang up, hang up. At this particular point, Michael arrives at the theatre looking for George Sr. only to find Barry, um, you know, and 
he asks, you know, how much do you know? And Michael says, well, I know Oscar's in prison. My father is a blue man and you're in cahoots with him. And I love, I love Henry Wingler's. What? Um, <laughs> <laughs> and he says that, you know, he was going to meet him here and give him the $250,000 and a passport. And Michael goes, it's just a passport. And he goes, I was up here for so long. And I don't know how Barry's <laughs> been able to spend like $250,000 in Reno. He says... He says, I was up for so long, which means he's been in a casino and he was winning for a long time and then lost it all. Ah, see, there you go. Uh, yeah. And this is the point at which Michael decides to fire Barry. <laughs> and, and he tells him that, that, you know, like the blues are his only client. Uh, what should he do now? Turn tricks on the street? How much do you think he'd get for that? <laughs> and, <it's, laughs> and he sets up something later on by saying, you know, what about making out? $50 or is that just LA? Um <laughs> <laughs> and that is not the last little pay to make out with someone I mean, I, 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 I it just reminds me of liz lemon like being like five for kissing you know <laughs> ten for cuddling end of list <laughs> yeah obviously you know barry zuckercorn has a high estimation of himself if he thinks he's gonna get fifty dollars a kiss um but Especially i mean in reno where well, the market is, is flooded <laughs> it is the funds yeah yeah is. that is it yeah um, and you know, we, we, once we, once we reach the, the hotel, um, with Lindsay and the kids, maybe and George Michael are trying to figure out, you know, what's going on with the tension between them. And, uh, you know, George Michael suggests it's because they didn't finish the kiss. And so they should finish the kiss. Um, <laughs> obviously always looking for any angle to, to keep this thing going. Um, maybe, you know, she was about to, you know, kind of acquiesce to this request as well when Lindsay appears. Um, and I love how George Michael just sits in the car and he says he's going to watch that famous Reno sunset. Uh, to which maybe says, isn't it behind you? And he's like, uh, yeah, so I'll look in the mirror. So it's, it's actually closer. Uh, which, of course, is incorrect because, the, you know, the whole point of of rearview mirrors and that song by meatloaf which is objects in them may appear smaller um so, <laughs> so that's you wouldn't want to watch a sunset in a mirror but you know obviously george michael just doesn't want to get too near maybe at this particular point and i love how job and steve holt have decided that they're going to call each other son because it's <laughs> such a <laughs> it's such a weird weird joke uh but you know job is like He's going to meet Michael and he'll get the keys to the cabin, son. And then Steve Holt is like, I'll buy some fishing stuff, son. <laughs> I don't know. It's just so weird. Um, and obviously this is where Michael asks where Job ran into Steve Holt. Um, and he says it's at the garden where the little boy found the arm. <laughs> <laughs> and I like when he goes, it's almost like I wish he could be my dad. Which doesn't make any sense. <laughs> Uh, and obviously Michael says you know, he, he figures out what's in the letter and he says that kid's your son you're the dad to which of course Job says I made a huge tiny mistake and um, <laughs> I, I, I love I love um, this is one of the things that Arrested Development does so well is it takes something someone has said and then the narrator basically kind of repeats it but changes the meaning slightly 
So, of course, Michael says, you know... No, no, Joe, 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 you can't just leave your son in the middle of a parking lot in Reno. And the narrator says... And that's when Michael saw his own son in a parking lot in Reno. <laughs> uh, and obviously, Michael misinterprets George Michael's presence there as he's driven the stair car all the way up to Reno by himself to be with Michael, which, that, I mean... I don't know if George Michael at this point is actually old enough to drive, so I don't know if he would have been able to do that. But of course, this is where, you know, Michael decides to take the stair car and, um, you know, they're an hour outside of Reno when Michael, George Michael wakes up. And of course, he says, our dreams are about to come true. And George Michael says, maybe. And then Michael goes, definitely. <laughs> <laughs> It's good that they're still getting mileage out of that joke name three seasons in. Uh-huh. Yeah. Uh, that, again, also might be a bit of a callback to the pilot because, of course, you know, when, well, yeah. when yeah. Maybe first appeared, he said, he, you know, George Michael said, are you my cousin? And she said, maybe. Yeah. Uh, and, and, of course, you know, they get to the, 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 the cabin. Um, but on the way there, Michael says, Uncle Oscar can stay in prison one more day. And the narrator says, not according to that day's vlog on imoscar.com. And we cut to a very quick shot of, of him where it, it basically says, I can't stay in here one more day. <laughs> is like the headline, uh, which is such a great joke. But I, I, the thing is, that's the last we ever see of the like imoscar.com stuff. But I like that that's the payoff yeah. to this joke is is him basically telling on the blog what the narrator wants to know. Um well, um, I mean, this was, again, like, this was kind of, uh, for my first introduction to, like, a slightly different style, of, well, I guess, very different style of sitcom. Like, I don't think I'd ever seen anything that was designed to be paused to be enjoyed. <laughs> yeah. Um, but yeah. that, like, I'm Oscar website has some of the funniest, like, freeze frame text. Mm-hmm. So his little blog for that day, um, I don't know if you've ever read it. I have, yes, but you uh, can read it if you wish. Oh, I don't, I don't have it in front of me. But oh. um, <laughs> if you've got it, <laughs> I, I don't there's, have it. There's like, I do know the gist of it. There's a picture of Michael, and it's like we. I had a visitor today. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it says like most of the posts are just I'm not, I'm not George, my, I'm not George <laughs> Senior Bluth. Uh, I swear to you, I'm Oscar. It's just, it's just stuff like that. Um, <laughs> but then on that uh, final uh, freeze frame. He's got a little blog post about um, how he was out in the uh, courtyard and he saw a bunch of ants and decided to take out his frustration by uh, using a magnifying glass to just burn these ants and he <laughs> yells, die, you black bastards, die. Oh, yeah. And then he gets stabbed a lot. Oh, <laughs> yeah. Of course, here we then we have a kind of callback to a joke that was quite prevalent in season two where, uh, you know, Michael tells George Michael he almost had Pop Pop in Reno. And George Michael says, me too. Uh, which suggests he thinks that, you know, had they not been broken up by Lindsay, that maybe was willing to have sex with him. <laughs> and I'm not sure that that's particularly true at this point. And then, of course, we 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 go we cut to Lucille, who is now 46 hours off her medication. Uh, and <laughs> she, she hears this snoring in Buster's room and she uh, gets a tripod and starts hitting it. Uh, and then we find out that it's just a recording of the snoring and a load of pillows. Uh, to which, of course, she says, well, that was a freebie. Um, and then realizing, you know, that maybe she's not in a good mood, she uh, takes off to, to go to the cabin because Michael, of course, had said it was unoccupied. And then we get one of my favorite kind of like tobias type moments where he sees a woman who looks a bit like Kitty. And, of course, he says... 
If this tableau I recreate, perhaps I can resnare my mate. <laughs> and the narrator's like, gee, why wouldn't she want him back? Um, <laughs> it's just such a terrible, like, I don't know who he's saying it to. He's just, like, saying it out loud. It's just such a weird joke. Um, uh, and then, of course, as Michael arrives um, at, at, the, uh, at the cabin in the woods, um, they see that they've trucked off the bedrooms and Michael suggests that they just put some sleeping bags in the living room. Um, and we see Lucille on the road. Um, I'm not sure which car she's driving at this particular point. Um, it looks like especially George Senior's car. George Senior's car, yeah. Because at this particular, I mean, you know, maybe and and Lindsay are essentially stuck without any transport because Michael has <laughs> taken the stair car, so they Steve just Holt can drive him home. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, he's old enough. He's about 22, 23 at this particular point. And you know, this is where this is where we 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 see you know Lucille driving and she hears some snoring and she goes. Oh, come on, which, of course, you know, is mostly Job's catchphrase, and Buster pops up. Um, and I love his explanation where he goes, I decided to sleep in the car so my snoring wouldn't bother you. And I left that recording of my snoring so you wouldn't know I'm gone. <laughs> <laughs> this just makes no sense. It's just such a nonsensical way of doing it. I don't know why he did that. It doesn't make any sense. Um... But I like that. Makes it. sense to Buster. Yeah, I guess, and of course, I like that. You know, she she says she's going to the cabin and, and she's going to drop him off, and he suggests going with her. And I like how he says this might be the exact shot in the arm our relationship needs. <laughs> Which, given given that you know George Michael just thought he was basically going to have intercourse with his cousin, that just is not an appropriate line. And and then obviously, you know, Lucille says she'll have someone to talk to, but then immediately Buster is fast asleep and snoring again. <laughs> and, and then, you know, Michael says, and, and this is where he's basically calling back to the pilot, where he says this is how they used to live when they were in the, up in the attic and they, they put a couple of sleeping bags down. Uh, and I always enjoy just scenes between, you know, uh, Michael and George Michael. This is where he kind of confesses that he hasn't been in the stair car because he wanted to spend time with, you know, Michael. Uh, that he's got like a different problem that's kind of weighing on his mind. Uh, and he says it's about a girl. Um, and he says, of course, you're not going to like it. And Michael, of course, asks, is it about Anne? Um, which is <laughs> probably the first time that Michael has actually remembered Anne without her physically being there to prompt him to remember her. Uh, so the mm-hmm. fact that he's like asking about it is quite interesting. And then, of course, he says that he likes Anne, which is not true because in every single occasion since meeting Anne, he's basically made it clear he doesn't like her. Uh, and George Michael says it's a problem without an answer. Um, now, here is the weirdest thing. In the next episode, in the recap of this, the conversation they have is completely different, and yet it's in <laughs> yeah. kind of the same area where they they talk about. He says it's a stupid girl problem, and Michael says, "Well, I haven't got a girl, let alone a stupid one." <laughs> and of course, George Michael has to say, <laughs> "It's not the girl that's stupid; it's the problem." Um, so, Foreshadowing. Yeah. Um, so, so it's odd that they change the kind of conversation that we see. Um, but I do. Yeah, I'll tell you as someone introduced to the show at season three and unaware that the next time ons and previously ons would be total crap uh this was very confusing <laughs> sometimes they aren't sometimes they particularly with maggie liza they reveal that she's not pregnant and that she's not blind in the on the next um so sometimes they do they do actually stay truthful but yeah i think it's just they they wanted to kind of sum it up a bit quicker so they just use different footage 
Um, and I like how Michael explains that they're going to get up early. They're going to tell the cops that Pop Pop escaped from prison. And then they're <laughs> going to go to the lake and discuss the girl problem. Um, and I, I like that he goes, it's going to be fun, especially part with the cops. Um, uh, and then, you know, he, he says, you know, whatever your problem is with the girl, we're going to figure it out. That's what this place is for. And cheating on Gangi. <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Uh, so yeah, God knows what's gone on in that cabin with all those uh, those different women that that George Senior has taken them. Uh, and you know, I, I like that that uh, Michael says, you know, this time we're not going to let family drag me away. And then the narrator says, and the next morning Michael rose early to spend the day with his son, only to find himself once again dragged away by his family. Uh, and obviously George Senior is driving the cabin. Um, I don't know where he's planning on going. He can't be going back to California, but I don't know. Maybe he's going to Las Vegas. I don't know what his plan is at this particular point. Um, and it's notable that this kind of he, he still has his um, blue man makeup on a little bit because he's trying to get rid of it. And there's still a bit on like his neck and there's some like little blue bits on his clothes. Um, and obviously, I like how the episode finishes with him going, "How do you like the cabin?" <laughs> Which is, <laughs> like here they are like. 20 something years later and he's like and he's like take a look at the cabin it's, it's like he didn't bring him there he still hasn't taken his son to the cabin it's just coincidence well just kind of uh, now that we're at the end of the episode and also now that we're just kind of talking about characters perhaps doing uh, totally inexplicable things for the sake of the joke like buster recording his snoring even though it's obviously undermining exactly what he's trying to do <laughs> Um, and things like Job hiding behind the door, um, Lindsay being wheeled around on the photocopier. I think a common, uh, at least I've, I've heard people sort of criticize season three for like taking an already cartoony show and sort of stripping away the last little bits of like plausibility or humanity from the characters. Do you think that's a fair criticism of the show? I mean, it's still so funny. Like, it's still a show that I fell in love with based on this season. Um, yeah. But I can definitely see where they're coming from. I think any sitcom ends up doing this thing, and the trope is usually called flanderization, which is yeah. if you look at season one of The Simpsons, Ned Flanders is merely a church-going man who isn't Homer Simpson. Like, he's competent at whatever job he has, and he's you know got a nice family, and that's pretty much his entire character. By the time you get to, like, season 15... Flanders is like an ultra church going like Christian who can't tolerate people saying swear words within his earshot and who, you know, goes to church three times a day and has to have like Reverend Lovejoy on speed dial. And like that one little tiny part of his personality of the fact that he goes to church ended up getting so exaggerated that it just kind of you lose anything else that is the character. And I don't think that. Arrested Development is guilty of that because obviously it was ne it's never been on long enough to, for that to happen. But I do think like Job kind of like the whole crying thing and, you know, making Michael want to lick his tears and stuff like that. Like <laughs> that's that's kind of a, a kind of cartoonish version of their relationship. You know, obviously he you know, he's always thought that Michael lacked emotion. But this is the season where everyone starts calling him a robot. For, for like no reason um you know and it's not that michael isn't like emotional because he can be it's just that he doesn't spend all his time crying as much as job does um, and i think sometimes the show is a little guilty i mean the stuff with oscar like 
you'll see on the I'm Oscar blog it says they shave my head every night because obviously they've got to cover the fact that Oscar's hair hasn't grown back in like two months you know so it's there's kind of these weird little justifications that they do and yeah like Job hiding behind the door for no reason and stuff like that it does just seem for the joke but I love that joke as well though when he's just standing behind the door like it's a great joke but yeah I I mean the characters are still there you know yeah definitely but it just it just becomes some stuff is just done for the joke and we get that in the on the next where Lucille finally arrives to find that there's no cabin and she accidentally <laughs> locks Buster in the car and forgets to put the handbrake on. And so, of course, what we saw on the television from two thousand from 1994 is 11 years later suddenly happening where Lucille is basically almost drowning her son, um, you know, and as she goes off to find a breakfast burrito. Um, and then we we see Steve Holt and maybe, you know, they meet. They know each other, obviously. And the narrator tells us maybe find someone to help her forget her cousin. And then, you know, uh, she goes to make out with Steve Holt and he says, her cousin. (laughs) Uh, So, again, they're kind of leaning heavily into the incest angle there. Uh, Mm -hmm. And then, of course, the final appearance of Henry Winkler is as a blue man uh, kissing Tobias as Kitty. Uh, (laughs) As Lindsay catches up with Tobias and says, get your hands off my husband, Kitty. And, of course, Tobias says, did someone say husband? (laughs) And then Lindsay announces she wants a divorce and Barry says he would be thrilled to represent either one of you. Uh, Mm -hmm. And then, of course, he says to Byers, that will be $50. (laughs) (laughs) Although I would have thought Tobias would have had to pay up front, um, you know, to to kind of get that to happen. Um, But yeah, and that is the end of the episode. But yeah, I mean, those on the next aren't, they aren't really that cartoony. Like, you know, maybe has been attracted to Steve Holt before. So the fact that she's attracted to him now and doesn't know he's her cousin, that just helps tie up two storylines in one go there, basically. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, I think the stuff with Rita, some people feel is a little too cartoony. And I can understand that because, you know, the, this run is only 13 episodes. So to spend five episodes <laughs> with Charlie's Theron, like just coming in and playing a brand new character uh, who kind of, has this these weird ticks which turn out to be something else uh i can understand how people might feel that's a bit cartoony um i think the only thing that the show suffers from is the fact that it never managed to get a 22 episode run after season one so some of the stuff in season two had to be wrapped up rather quickly and you know some of the stuff in this season feels particularly the last kind of five episodes feels really rushed and like they don't get time to let stuff breathe. I don't know. I mean, I I really like season three, though I still feel it's maybe a little weak because it's too short. Uh, but then obviously with Netflix, once they started having thirty-five minute episodes, we found out that maybe just having thirteen episodes limited to twenty minutes ago <laughs> yeah. might have been more advantageous to the the style of humor. Um, so, is there anything else you feel we need to discuss about this episode? Anything that we might have missed? Um. Well, maybe in a more kind of general sense um although like i i was sort of reminded of wanting to ask this question when we were talking about michael just kind of taking any opportunity to snipe at Lindsay. um like michael is the hero <laughs> of the show but he's uh he's not uh i mean like all the characters he's heavily in denial about his own right. flaws um but it does at, at times i i feel a bit i feel a bit like the show um unjustly punishes him 
where all the other characters are often terrible enough people that when bad things happen to them, you kind of feel, ah, maybe they deserved it. Do you think that maybe Michael almost deserved a better, uh, a better set of circumstances? And the show was maybe a little bit too cruel to him, a little bit too often. I, d- I don't know. I think I think by the end of season three, you know, he gets to finally get away from the family. That's what he wanted to do in the pilot. That's what he was doing at the start of season two. And that's what he's doing here is he's trying to get away from the family and spend time with his son. Um, and, you know, I-, I think the show lets him do that sometimes. But, yeah, you know, like, I mean, th- you have storylines with, like, with Maggie where she's constantly lying to him. And I think maybe he, you know, he, he could have... That could have been a better relationship or, you know, Job gets away with so much in terms of like what he does <laughs> that sometimes it does feel like Michael is, you know, but he, he, he has to be responsible. That's the thing is Michael, you know, he knows he's got to be responsible because of his son. And, and you know, the kind of father-son relationship is a bit of a reflection of the, you know, George Senior was completely irresponsible and distant and, you know, didn't really kind of act well towards uh, Michael. So I think that's why Michael himself tries to correct that and be a bit more kind of responsible. And he's always trying to spend time with George Michael. That's something that's always going on from like season one when he was, you know, trying to make cornballs <laughs> on a on a Sunday and go for bike rides. Like he's always trying to, to have stuff to do with his son so that he doesn't repeat the mistakes that George Sr. makes. But, you know, he's got... He's got his family that are constantly hampering that, you know, and the opening credits, when we actually get them, they, they spell that out. You know, he's the one who ha- who's trying to hold the whole family together. So maybe that's why it feels like he's getting punished a bit too much sometimes. Also, at the same time, we've seen multiple instances where he needs his family to need him just as much as, you know, he needs to keep it all together. He could leave if he wanted to. And he could yeah. just say no, but he likes how important he is. And uh, I think he likes the idea of being a good dad, but he never listens to what George Michael wants. He, <laughs> yeah. he never asks him really what he wants. He Yeah, yeah. So, well, I think we've covered this episode well enough. So uh, I'm going to go yeah. to plugs and I'm going to start with uh, Chris. Do you have anything you wish to plug? Yeah, there's this one episode of A Talking Cast that I did. <laughs> It's uh, pretty good. You should check it out. And, That's about it. And Emily? Um, yeah, so hopefully by the time this airs, my podcast with Ollie Brady will be off the ground, and that is called Best Acquaintances, Best Acquaintances Podcast. Um, yeah, so look for that one. It should be fun. Okay, thanks to both of you for joining me here. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah, it was fun. And otherwise, goodbye. Bye. Bye. <laughs>